The Living Traditions Festival is back Friday, May 17th through Sunday, May 19th at Washington Square Park in downtown Salt Lake City. You will find a global food court, live music, performances, art, workshops, Bohemian Brewery, and stuff for kids. Full disclosure, this is my favorite Salt Lake Festival. For details and to see the full program, visit livingtraditionsfestival.com or find them on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. It's the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, the federal law that demands we protect imperiled plants and animals in this country. So, whose life is on the line in Utah? Today we're talking about the water monster every Salt Lake angler should know. It's Thursday, July 20th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Sarah Seeger, you head up an endangered species recovery program for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Now, your work focuses mainly on fish, but generally speaking, how many endangered species does Utah have, fish or otherwise? So Utah has actually 41 species of threatened or endangered uh, species. 24 of those are plants. Ah. The rest are fish, birds, mammals, and one reptile. What's something on Utah's endangered species list that might surprise people? The desert tortoise is on the endangered species list. It's a threatened species. Mm. I don't know if that would surprise people or not, but they are only found down in the southwest corner of the state, down by St. George. And so Hmm. they coexist in one with one of the fastest growing communities in the country. Their habitat, I imagine, is being dramatically altered to make room for golf courses. Certainly, uh, some of their habitat has been altered to to support the community in St. George, but there's also a large preservation, the Red Cliffs Desert Preserve, yeah. um, down in that area of the state, ensures that they have, that some of their habitat is maintained so that, that people and desert tortoises can can persist. Okay, let's talk about fish, though. What is your favorite on the endangered species list and why? I think my favorite, I like them all, but I really like the Colorado pike minnow. Um, It's an endangered species that lives in the Colorado and Green Rivers. It is a minnow, but it can grow up to be six feet long. And so... They are the top native predator in the in the river basins, in the Colorado River Basin. And uh, historically, they would make uh, migrations of hundreds of miles um, throughout the main stem rivers up, up into tributaries mm. uh, to complete their spawning migrations and to complete their life stages. So if we're in Salt Lake County, we don't have these fish. But if I'm taking a weekend trip, where would I where would I find one? If I'm up maybe at Flaming Gorge? Maybe downstream of Flaming Gorge, really throughout uh, a lot of the Colorado River and Green Rivers. They are still pretty rare, so but every now and then we do get reports of people catching them on, you know, when they're angling. If you do, you have to be sure to release them right away. <laughs> It's against the law to possess them for any any longer than you have to. 
if you accidentally catch one. So that's a good tip for Salt Lake anglers that might be fishing those tributaries. Yeah, definitely always. They'll only be in the tributaries, um, mostly when they're spawning. Mostly they, they stick to more of the main stem rivers. So the green itself and the and the Colorado River itself. Mm. But definitely if you're out fishing, double check, make sure you're up on your identification. Um, because in the in the Colorado and Green River systems, we have four threatened and endangered species of fish. What is the difference between a threatened and endangered species? So an endangered species is the category that's most imperiled. It is at risk of becoming extinct. And a threatened, threatened species is not quite as imperiled. Essentially, the, the language in the law says it's a species that is at risk of becoming endangered. Hmm. Okay. Got it. But either way, they're species that their populations aren't doing very well. And in order to maintain them and keep them, you know, preserve them and keep them alive, we need to undertake some conservation and, and protections to, to maintain those populations and, and recover them. Well, you've spent a lot of time getting to know everything about these fish, the Colorado pike in particular. How did they become endangered? You know, there are a few different things that have happened, kind of common themes across the board with all these different species of, of fish that have been becoming endangered. And some of the um, main factors are habitat loss. This could be due to changing temperatures in the rivers, either becoming too cold or too warm. Uh, loss of nursery habitat, which, you know, a lot of fish need kind of backwater or wetland areas, floodplain wetlands to com- to grow up and become big enough to survive in the big rivers. Overfishing is also something that happened earlier. Mm-hmm. People don't harvest them at that levels anymore. And then also non-native fish. There are a lot of non-native fish that people that have found their ways into Utah waterways and they can really damage our native fish populations either through predation, you know, eating adult native fish or sometimes even the young native fish and also through competition. Basically, there's so many native fish that just eat up all the food that there's none left for the native fish. How do non-native fish make their way into Utah? Sometimes it was management actions, actually, that was taken a long time ago. You know, this is one of the reasons you have to kind of think carefully about what you do. So sometimes people will have stocked them into reservoirs and streams throughout the throughout the region. You mean land like land management organizations, like, for example, the BLM or something like that. They might be accidentally stocking non-native fish in our streams. No, not anymore. Oh, okay, okay. Historically, like back in the 1800s when European settlers were making their way uh, across the country, they also were bringing the fish that they liked with them. Ah, yes. Okay. Got it. And so (laughs) that is kind of where we're at. And there are, because we have so many reservoirs that are not native habitats in Utah, really, we didn't have very many lakes before we started building dams. The Division of Wildlife Resources does stock some native, some non-native fish um, into those reservoirs to provide fishing opportunities for people to, so people can get out and enjoy the, enjoy the wildlife. Um, not all non-native fish are bad and they're not all bad everywhere. It's just when they kind of overlap and, and impinge on the, on the habitats of the native 
sensitive species that the trouble starts. And there are some that are worse than others just based on their habit- their habits. I want to ask you about, uh, to confirm or deny a rumor that I heard recently from someone about fish, because you mentioned that the Colorado pike travel long, they can travel long distances. And someone told me that fish have this like bone in their ear that you can study. And from that, you can actually ascertain like based on sediment and things like that, like everywhere a fish has ever been. Is that real? It's pretty accurate. I don't know if it, I don't know that you can tell everywhere, but yeah, the bone is called an otolith. Okay. And so it is the ear bones. As the fish grows, they put down rings on the otolith, sort of like a tree. To get to the otolith, you have to sacrifice the fish. You have to have a dead fish in hand to dissect. Um, But you can pull out those teeny tiny bones. Some are big, some are teeny tiny, like grains of rice. But you can section them, so slice them very thinly and look at them under a microscope and you can see how old the fish was um, by counting the rings. You can also do some chemistry analysis. You can use a laser to burn up a section of the otolith and based on certain chemical signatures that come off, um, you can compare that to water samples of different places that they may have lived and ascertain where they have lived. Now, I don't, I don't know that that's fine enough resolution to tell everywhere they've ever lived, but we use it um, sometimes to tell if that fish, w- you know, where that fish was born, where it spent its early life. Wow. I just think that's so cool. Mostly true. I'd say that rumor is mostly true. <laughs> Spring is when leases expire, and if you're looking for a new or better apartment situation, here's the scoop at Ico Fort Union. Fort Union is Ico's newest build in Cottonwood Heights off 1300 East and 6720 South. And as they say in real estate, location, location, location. Ico Fort Union puts you 10 minutes from the mouth of Big Cottonwood Canyon and central to all the Fort Union shops and restaurants, but the complex is located on a dead-end street, so you get peace. Ico Fort Union offers studio, one, two, and three-bedroom apartment homes, plus these very cool three-bedroom work-live apartments, so if you're starting something new, you can live above your business space. Amenities include a pet spa, a spin loft, a bike hub, and EV charging stations. And they are signing leases right now. So visit liveatfortunion.com for a tour. Okay, I want to ask you about the role of our drought in all of this. We just got out of a drought, and we're always struggling with water in the West. How does our limited water supply and the infrastructure to deal with it impact these endangered fish species? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the drought impacts the fish and also our water development has impacted the fish. But also we need that water to support human populations. And and we all recognize that. Not surprisingly, fish need water to live. And so it's definitely been a challenge, especially in the drought years. The fish often may not have enough water in the 
system at the right time to be able to complete their life cycle. A lot of times the fish rely on cues. So, you know, that we get the big spring runoff peak and flows and they rely on those cues to know that it's time to swim upstream and spawn. And then that washes the the larval fish down and they go into the floodplain wetlands to where it's nice and warm and Mm. they grow fast and have lots of food. And so when we don't have those spikes or if we have, you know, control devices like dams uh, in the way, it can disrupt some of that natural variation that the fish rely on. But the good news is we have recovery programs established, which are partnerships of a lot of different agencies federal and state agencies and water users that work together to to provide water at the right time of year um, and create some of those flows, kind of manufacture some of those um, flow spikes in a way that support the fish, but also continue to support water use by humans. What else are you all doing to beef up their numbers? I mean, aside from the water conservation conversation. Sure. So water is a big part of the recovery programs, but also We do do non-native control. So, for example, in the Colorado River system, um, smallmouth bass and northern pike and walleye are kind of the three three baddies. Um, And so the Division of Wildlife Resources with our partners, the Fish and Wildlife Service and Colorado Parks and Wildlife, our crews go out and they, they electrofish. That's how we catch the fish and remove tons of non-native fish especially in the areas where they overlap with native fish. What's electrofishing? Electrofishing is using electricity to catch fish. (laughs) So we have rafts that we put anodes and cathodes into the water. The positive and negative parts of electricity are an electrical circuit. And we pulse electricity into the, through the water and it stuns the fish that are in the in the area and you can they float to the top and you can scoop them up okay i've never heard of this in my entire life (laughs) sounds very dramatic it sounds kind of scary and it is definitely not something to mess around with but when you're trained on it you can use it to efficiently capture a lot of fish and it actually doesn't it's not as impactful as you might think to the native that's how we sample native fish also in a lot of ways but we use that um, sampling method a lot to collect non-native fish and remove them from the systems. Some of the other things that we do to support native fish recovery, a lot of these species, we've actually brought some of some individuals into the our fish hatcheries in the state. And we keep those fish as brood stock. And essentially we spawn them and propagate them to create more fish that we can then supplement the wild numbers so we stock fish the native fish out to prop up their numbers and just kind of hopefully get over that critical mass where they can start reproducing naturally and support themselves in the wild. Sounds like quite a bit of puppeteering from you all as an agency. And I wonder, like, as not scientists who either like to fish or recreate upstream from these species, what's our role as just general public in protecting these fish? Like, how can we support you? Sure. I mean, I think there is a lot to do. The, the West had a great a great snow year, giving us a little reprieve, but I'm not sure that I'm ready to say that we're out of the drought. I think 
even just this week, it's hot and dry and (laughs) has been hot and dry for a long time now and in Salt Lake City, at least where I am. So, you know, doing everybody doing their part in water conservation. One of the other things that uh, I think often gets overlooked is that we talked about non-native fish and how agencies a long time ago or people, you know, the early settlers brought their favorite fish out. And that's one way that non-native fish got here. But another way is that sometimes people release fish into the wild, and that can be really problematic. Sometimes people have aquarium fish or pet goldfish or whatever that they decide they don't want anymore, and so they but they don't want to kill the fish, and so they let them they let them go, they set them free. <laughs> um, but they can cause so much damage to the ecosystem and to our native fish, and really it can cause problems. We have a little slogan, don't ditch a fish. You don't want to release your pet fish. Um, talk to an aquarium store about what the proper way to, to dispose of your fish or get rid of your fish if you don't want them anymore. The other thing, we do have some instances of illegal introductions of kind of sport fish. So like northern pike, which is a non-native species that was naturalized in some of our reservoirs. And for example, in Utah Lake, where the threatened June sucker live, but the we did not have northern pike in that lake. In about 2011, we started seeing pike show up. So we hypothesized that somebody moved a live, you, you know, some live pike into Utah Lake. I don't know why. Maybe they thought it would be fun to fish for them on Utah Lake. But mm. it is really problematic because they pose, they're really efficient predators and they can, they pose a pretty big threat to June sucker now. Mm. And so don't move fish. It's illegal to release live fish without a permit. So that's another thing that the public can do. Just make sure they're not moving fish and make sure their friends know that they shouldn't release fish. They shouldn't be moving live fish around. When I was a kid, I was an only child. And so I had a, godforsaken number of pets. I've had like every kind of pet because my parents were like, here, here's a pet. (laughs) And whenever I would get bored with them, my mom's trick is she would donate them to the school to be like a classroom pet. (laughs) So like I remember I had turtles and they were really stinky and she and I both agreed that they just couldn't live with us anymore. But it was like she would call, call up the school and see if any of the teachers were interested in a classroom pet. And then that was how we offloaded it but so I've donated fish to schools before and I wonder if there are parents listening to this that are trying to get rid of an aquarium maybe that that could be an alternative (laughs) yes if you're not sure you can also contact the division of wildlife resources but you know it's not just fish it's turtles it's Mm -hmm. any any pet wildlife don't don't release it back into the into the wild. They can cause problems with disease. Also, a lot of times pets can carry disease and and pose a threat to the to wild populations of related species. Sarah Siegert with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate being here. You have got to get a look at these Colorado pike minnow. They are hideous but very cool, and apparently referred to as the Toothless Monster of Utah. The Division of Wildlife Resources put together a story map where you can learn about the Colorado pike minnow left in our state and see some historic photos of old-timers catching these monsters. I linked that for you in the show notes. 
The DWR's Endangered Species Mitigation Fund has voted to allocate $4.4 million towards conservation projects this year. So expect to see more species recovery work like this in Utah. And not just for the Colorado pike minnow, but other species with crazy names, like the Virgin River Chub, the June Sucker, and of course, fan favorites like the California Condor and the Desert Tortoise. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.